What I do is inconsequential. Why I do what I do is I get to shorten people's journeys every day. What I love about our hospitality industry is that it's our mission to make people feel cared for while on their journeys. Together, we'll explore what hospitality means in the built environment, in business, and in our daily lives. I'm Dan Ryan, and this is Defining Hospitality. Welcome, everyone. Today's guest holds state licenses in architecture and interior design. He's very keen at visualizing spaces in three dimensions. He has a keen eye for design. He is vice president of architecture and design at Hilton Worldwide. Ladies and gentlemen, Vito Loda. Welcome, Vito. Pleased to be here, Dan. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. And just so everyone knows, um, if you're listening, well, you are listening. Um, this is we've been doing this podcast about a year, and this is the. Thank you. It's a real great milestone, um, and it's such a passion project. I love it so much, but this is the first one that I've done actually in person. Everything else has been remote, and I think the reason why I'm sharing that with everyone right now is. Um, one of the things, well, there's a lot of things I really like about you, Vito, but one of them is on me, in many of our conversations, it's all about getting uncomfortable to grow. Right. Right. And I think that as this show and podcast evolves and as we keep growing, I think it's, un, it's important to get uncomfortable, to come into a soundstage and try this because I would love to do this on the road and not remote. And I think there's a, there's a really cool energy that I'm feeling right now between us as we're having this conversation. So I wanna just thank you from the beginning to say thank you for helping me get uncomfortable to try this out here in Virginia. And it's, it's just great to see you, so thank you. Well, Dan, thank you for helping me become comfortable because as I told you, I'm never uncomfortable on stage in, large, in front of you know a thousand people speaking. But I get nervous on camera. I get nervous doing Zooms. It just, it seems awkward to me. I like being live. And so when you said do it, I was like, no, I don't want to do it. But I trust you, you know? And so I, I wanted to uh, to do this with you. So that's when I said, why don't we just do this live? It's in person. So it's just us. I, just friends. I, well, I'm just grateful because, again, as we continue to grow because we're always growing and whatever has gotten any of us to where we are currently, it's not going to serve us as we go forward, right? So it's always important to get uncomfortable, try new things and continue to evolve. I, I really, truly do that. So again, thank you. You're welcome. Um, so I think that idea of growth and evolving and evolution is a, I think it's going to be an interesting topic for our conversation mm -hmm. because um, I know in our earlier conversations, just hearing about how, who you are, how you are, like how you got bitten by the design bug and then your experience of your early experiences of hospitality. I'm hoping, well, I know we're going to do it, so I'm not hoping anything, but just like telling that story of your origin of how did you become so fascinated with 3D spaces mm -hmm. and then once like uh, he hearing that and and then also design and creation um i think you have a really awesome first experience or experiences of hospitality that i don't know if a lot of people know so where wherever you want to start give it a give it a whirl sure well um so first exposure into design in the creative 
side. So, um, you know, as a child, you know, my father started teaching me how to draw, you know, and I would watch him sketch and draw and he was showing me these different techniques and he would break it down into fundamentals. And, uh, I was an avid cartoon fan. So I was watching Bugs Bunny and Wile E. Coyote and you see Wile E. Coyote would get a drafting board out and he would draw and design something and then he would go build it and of course it would fail. And then he would go back and redraw it, redesign it, build it, and it would fail and do this over and over again. Would it fail or did the Roadrunner just outsmart him every time? Both. <laughs> so interestingly, my I was as a child, I would go into my father's den and I, there was a drafting board. And I was like, oh my gosh. I didn't know what it was called a drafting board, but... Well, and for all of you younger listeners out there, a drafting board is something, you know, you have a, a straight edge and you have all these other attachments, but you actually use a pencil or pen, right. which many of the younger people might not know what that is. So yeah, don't... You're dating yourself. Literally, now. it was what Wiley Coyote had. Yeah. And I was like, wow, what is that? And it's like, well, you do these drawings. It's like, why do you do these drawings? Like, well, I didn't know that my father was an inventor and he held patents. And so that's when I started learning. I was like, oh, he invented all these different things and he had these patents. And so then he started to show me how to draw. And so what I would do is then imagine stuff, draw it, build it, see if it would work. And then if it didn't work, then redesign it, rebuild it. Now, a lot of things that I ended up designing and building as I was getting older were a bit mischievous. Um Okay, so we now we need we need to go there. So I'm curious about two things. Then number one, you you said your dad had many patents. So what was one of the coolest ones that he had, um, or one that he was most proud of, and one of the one that you were most proud well, of? Well, one of the ones that I thought was odd. Now again, you know, my parents were much older than me, and their parents were much older than them. So there's quite a generational stretch. So um, technology was more analog. Back then, it wasn't really digital. So um, he created a bowling ball drill press where he would design the, the grip for the bowling ball to get it just the way that the athlete or client wanted it. And then he would have one machine that would follow that shape of the bowling ball, and then the other side would drill it to match it. Really? So almost like a, like a 3D jig or something like yeah. that? Huh. And it was just molded specifically for the person's fingers yeah, or he hand? Yeah, would, he would customize the shape of the of the ball and the grips and to what worked best for them, and then it would it would follow that shape and drill it. He um, he had uh, – people have seen the old thing where you would have a, a line that would go across um, um, a bathtub to hang things on. Mm -hmm. And people have seen the old spool on the wall. He would have something that was discreet and – set into the wall flush. He had a, a seat that would come out of the wall. So it was flush in the wall so you can fold it out of the wall and sit down to take a, a shower. And was this his vocation or was it something he did on the he side was, and he wanted to he get He had a lot of irons in the fire going on. He had a lot of things going on. He was, you know, self-employed, but that was sort of his side passion was doing the creative invention. And, uh, that, but that wasn't his sort of day job. Wow. What was his day He was a plumber. Oh, cool. But always tinkering and creating. Always tinkering and creating, yeah. Okay, so those are super awesome. And then if you think about your mischievous ones, what were some, what, like, what are some well, that you could share I, with Well, you know, us? I started initially as, uh, you know, 
want to catch the bunny rabbit in the backyard and keep it as a pet, right? So you, there was different ways of creating these box traps that were getting more and more sophisticated. And so... Literally, you were Wiley Coyote. I would make... Yeah. That's totally from the cartoon. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I invented this thing where you would try and get them into the box and how was it going to trigger it? So then I had this little touchpad. I want to make it super sensitive. So it was part of a, a mouse trap that would pull a string, which, because it didn't have enough force to have the door close. That would, that would tripwire a rat trap, which would be stronger, which would then pull a pin that would have a door drop. And so it was like, this would affect that, which would affect that, which, and would keep on going. So when I got older and there was, we lived in an area on the sort of edge of town and there was this forest and there was a bunch of these older kids, kind of bullies there. And, you know, they were like, you know, like stay out of our turf. Please tell me you made a trap for them. So as, as one of the only kids in my neighborhood who was my age, I'm like, <clears throat> we're going to take this over with some guerrilla warfare. Wow. So started creating some little mischievous things that they would hit a tripwire, which would cause this happen to that happen. And little fireworks would go off and little things would happen. <laughs> so that's, that's the stuff that we would do before we had devices. Like we would just figure stuff out and just yeah. make things. And, uh, but my conscience was always like, I want it to be something that is absolutely safe. I didn't want anybody to get hurt. I just wanted to make it like this air is persona non grata. You, you're, you're not allowed here. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. And then with your inventions that you would do or that you would create, would you draw them out first? I would draw them out because I was trying to literally engineer what it would be. And then that would go to the direction of I would make these, um, these gifts for friends and family where you would go to open it in something unexpected would happen. So, for example, you know, you could tear open a present or you can do the thing where you wrap the top separately from the bottom, you undo the bow, you lift up the lid, and then what happens? So the whole thing would open up and you would have glitter bombs go off. and A gender reveal party before the yeah, gender so reveal Yeah, so glitter party. bombs and confetti and stuff would go shooting into the air. And so people would start getting cautious. Mm. So then there was one time I like, Okay, I've got this little CD. When CDs cases first came out, mm -hmm. so what could he possibly put in a CD case? So I had, I had de designed the CD case where, um, when you tore the label, or tore, I mean, tore the the gift wrap off of it, two layers would come in contact with each other, would make this little, tiny ladyfinger firecracker go off, and it would surprise them. Oh, fun. But again, I'm like, I want to make sure nobody gets hurt. <laughs> but you wanted to freak them out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> always be always be challenging their, uh, just the, the sanctity and the calm. Yeah. So yeah. it was, so it was so always trying to, like, trying to look, like, look at things in a different way. Sort of like, you know, challenge, challenge pe people's imagination. And do you have any of those old drawings? Uh, I think I do. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, that would be, uh, I'd love to see them at some point. Um, but... I do miss those times of just boredom and boredom for me would always lead to creating things. And I just remember being home alone a lot and I don't know. I, I don't think I ever complained about being bored. I'd always go out in the woods or figure something to do. I look at my kids now and it's like, they're like, I'm bored. I'm bored. I'm so bored. I'm like, good. 
Well, boredom is a great place to drill down into your imagination, but it's hard to do that if your if your mind is constantly filled with new content coming in. And I can be guilty of that myself. You know, I can be sitting down with my wife and she's listening to a podcast, and at the same time, I'm going through YouTube videos, hitting clickbait of what's interesting to me. Right, because you're. It's almost. It's. I find sometimes that that stuff can be soothing in a way, a way to turn off and just focus on other things, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I do appreciate the boredom and I try to get keep my kids, or get, not keep them bored, but I, I need them to have moments of boredom because I think that's where really exciting stuff comes out of. Yeah, yeah. Or, get or get lost in the passion, in the passion of, cooking. of cooking. Cooking or, cooking or just yeah. reading. Like, yeah, not much yeah, for reading. No, oh, I love reading. <laughs> right. Oh, right, okay. Um, okay, so I'm I'm seeing the like the the percolation of your your creative origins, right? So okay, tinkering, crafting, drafting, creating, mm -hmm. um, in three dimensional spaces. Mm -hmm. Now, most people, when they have that, they go on into architecture, design, mm -hmm. um, graphic design, any you know any kind of creative space yeah. i i think what's really interesting you know you have i have all these conversations or you're at a dinner party or a cocktail party and someone's an architect or someone's a designer or someone like george Costanza. Yeah. yeah well he's 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 an entrepreneur he created vandalay industries yeah. Yeah, right um but and those are all really cool vocations mm -hmm. right but i always find when i'm around people like you or colleagues of yours or just other friends of mine who are building, designing, creating hotels, at a cocktail party, everyone's like, wow, that's amazing. Like, I didn't even know people did that. They just think that these things appear. Mm -hmm. But like the specialization, I think, is it's just, it's fascinating to me, uh, but it's also fascinating to just a lot of people because they just don't know that that happens. So I see the, the origin of your, your creative birth so to speak. Um, but if you think about hospitality, how did you, how did you kind of weave those two together? Um, or, or where did you get your ex first experience of hospitality? Um, so uh, I mentioned my dad had a lot of irons in the fire, a lot of things going on. Well, <clears throat> my father's father, so my my father, first of all, is old, kind of old enough to be my grandfather, and his father was old enough to be his grandfather because he was fairly young in a chain of eight kids. And um, so this is a long arc story. So it turned out that um, at the end of Prohibition, my grandfather built a ballroom. Where? Uh, Freeport, Illinois. Okay. So it's outside of Chicago. It's way be way beyond the suburbs. And um, so that stayed in business from the end of Prohibition to the end of my high school years. Now, my father met my mom. My mom taught dance for Arthur Murray. Oh, wow. And so they were a perfect match. And as a kid, I was like, when do I get to go to the ballroom? So in high school, I started to work at the ballroom. I did checking coats, and then, when I, then I would park cars, and I would even help help out behind the bar and as my mom was training my sister and myself to be 
very good ballroom dancers. She would say, okay, your job is to go dance with guests. And so as a high school kid, you're going up to the table and go, you know, hello, Mr. Anderson, uh, you're not dancing. Maybe I could bring Miss Anderson out on the floor. And he's like, yeah, yeah, she wants to dance. Take her out on the floor. So I go on the floor and dance. And I realized a lot of our guests weren't very good dancers. And you are a very good dancer. I was raised doing it. So I just thought everybody was. And uh, so when I went and complained to my mom, it's like, you know, I don't want to dance with these people. They're very awkward. You know, they're, they're clumsy. You know, they're stepping on my toes. And she says, well, your job is to dance with them. And she goes, you have to keep in mind, and that's when I first heard the word hospitality. She goes, we're in the business of hospitality. She goes, you're, you're supposed to use your gift of dance to make our customers, our guests, feel as elegant and graceful as they aspire to be, not as awkward and clumsy as they really are. So it took, you know, it gave me a new perspective on it. So then I was motivated. I was like, oh, I want to find the most awkward person out there and make them feel wonderful about themselves because I can adjust and shift to their natural movements. And so then we together looked graceful dancing together. And then when they felt great, I'd bring them back to the table and say, Mr. Anderson, Mrs. Anderson is ready to dance with you now. Oh, wow. That's She's great. That's so incredible. So I love all the stories of of the ballroom and the dance hall. Mm -hmm. um, but in particular, what I find fascinating, and I think cause it, it resonates with me as far as challenging yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And again, it's how we started talking about getting uncomfortable to grow. You would make a beeline for the dancers who were not the most skilled. And the challenge there was to make them feel comfortable to get them uncomfortable, to make them feel comfortable so that they would learn, right? right? Now, I, like, did you do it a hundred times, a thousand times? Like, I mean, it was hundreds. I mean, the sequence was, you know, people are coming in, you're checking coach, you're parking cars, you're getting everybody settled. And then there's this point where it's like, <clears throat> everybody's here. Um, my sister and I would go out and dance together and the floor would just clear. So we would just put on this great demonstration. And was it swing, ballroom? Swing, or you know, jitterbug, foxtrot, waltz kind of thing. And then when you would just kind of walk along the tables, you, literally then you would have the, the patrons would kind of raise their hand that they wanted to dance and you would see who danced. And so with, two people raise their hand, you would pick the one that you've already seen before as not as skilled, more clumsy, because it was it was more of that sense of a gift that you could give if you can help them feel elegant on the floor. Okay, so in some, some way, okay, you're going up to them, they're uncomfortable, but you're making them comfortable. You're also uncomfortable taking that first step, right? Right. It, it, now I'm trying to figure out a way to get this back into your evolution as a designer and architect, right? So mm -hmm. if you think about you would tinker and create these kind of cool contraptions, you'd draw them, you'd make them. 
that you found that to be a comfortable creative place for you, right? Because right? I was good at it. You were because you were good at yeah. it. Yeah. So what I'm trying to do is find this place where you're uncomfortable taking that first step. Mm -hmm. They're uncomfortable. You get out there on the floor. You get them better. You're better. You're more confident. Um, and growth happens, right? So now you go back to your creative origin, right? Where you're tinkering, drawing, creating, because that's where you felt safe. It was comfortable. I was good at it. You were good and at I it. And I was getting better and better at it. Okay. And like what drove you to there, to that place where you were always tinkering and alone with yourself, creating these really cool contraptions? Well, it's it was a, you know, a self it was a cycle of self-feeding of of success mm -hmm. as in i was getting better and better at imagining things in a different way visualizing them three-dimensionally capturing it by drawing it from different angles constructing it and understanding the difference of reality between the built environment and the imagined environment and and then the positive reinforcement from from my family of seeing this grow and so I was very good at that. And the only thing that was kind of close to that was in school when they would have a science fair. I was always winning the science fairs. I would win the, the, the art, um, you know, competitions. But that was the limited area of my success academically. So Limited area. Yeah. So you would win all these events and excel at them, but at the expense of something else. Yeah, I'd... The challenge in school was, you know, you started out in an early program before kindergarten, and you go to kindergarten, you go to first grade, and we're everybody's starting to learn, you know, see John run. And then we get to second, third grade, and I'm still at see John run. Oh. And everybody else is learning how to read. And I'm like going, how are you cracking the code? How are you decoding this? And that was the thing where I was like, you know, that's when you felt this sort of heavy load come down, like, oh, my gosh, I'm the only one that can't learn how to read beyond C. John Run. And what was it just aptitude or was it like a, a learning difference? Like what it was, was a learning difference. It was, you know, I didn't understand until later on. It was dyslexia. Oh. So it was a challenge of and it's maybe more complex than just that. I mean, one thing is you, I would see things differently, flipped, rotated, flopped. Um, and just the, the whole process of decoding as you're reading. I mean, if it was just oral, that was fantastic. So they would always say, well, you're smart. So you're just not trying hard. You know? And then I'm, I'm envisioning you using your dad's drafting table and you're kind of decoding and programming things to figure out what you're trying to do, which is not necessarily, not necessarily as linear as reading might be. Right. And so... You know, I couldn't understand how other people couldn't visualize three-dimensionally, and they couldn't understand why I was finding it so difficult to read. You would get like a crossword puzzle or a, a crossword puzzle and mazes in a book. And I would go through all the mazes instantly. Just all the mazes are done. And they would say, well, do another maze. They're all done. They would give me hard ones. They'd be done. It was like there was no maze that was not uh, a breeze to just whip through because I could visually I see it instantly and go through it. But being able to 
do the crossword puzzle was challenging because it had to do with the, the reading, the writing, the word side of it as a visual. But in conversation, it was fine. So to now, today, I've got the benefit of new technology. Right. I, we, I started go when I, if I do, they jump all the way to the forward where I'm like, oh, well, maybe I can make a living doing something that I can do as less reading and writing as possible. And it's all about drawing and visualizing. Architecture is great. Especially in the 3D space. Until somebody invented email. And right. email is a huge part of our time. And it's like, oh, my God. So, But I email with you, so I know you can read and write. I listen to the emails. And really? I dictate the message. And then I have it play back. Because even if I type it, I'll, I'll read it. And I'll go. And my reading's a lot stronger now. But it okay. took time to get there. But if I read it, it's I'll read what it ought to say. And then I play it and listen to it. And it's like, oh, no, no. That's completely wow. a mess. Yes. So I'm actually very intrigued by that because, again, as we talk about growth through getting uncomfortable, mm -hmm. you were perhaps I, I'm not I don't want to be a psychologist here, but you're spending a lot of time doing what you're comfortable at. Right. Dancing, right. Mm -hmm. drawing, drafting, creating, inventing, mm -hmm. tinkering. Um, but obviously you graduated from high school, you graduated from college, you're leading teams, you're working at a Fortune 500 company. I passed a licensing exam for an architecture. Oh my God, I can't even imagine how boring and Byzantine that was. And that's a lot of reading. Like, Not only was it a lot of reading, I was worried that when I go, okay, the answer is B, and I would go over to, is B the second one from that side or that side? <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. But then if you think about it, you didn't spend all of your time at that drafting table as much as you wanted to. Correct. You did have to get really uncomfortable to push yourself to catch up to all of your peers. Mm -hmm. And how was that for you? Well, I mean, so, you know, you probably should edit some of this stuff out because it's so bearing my soul. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to get out of eighth grade. The teacher. But you did. I, the teacher literally said, you, you, you. You failed every spelling test of the year, abysmally. You're not getting out of the grade until you learn how to spell all these words. So I studied and studied and studied and studied. She gave me the 100-word spelling test, which, you know, to now, now 100 doesn't seem like a big number, but, but when I was trying to get out of the grade, it seemed like it was a million. All, all these things that end with T-I-O-N or S-I-O-N, I'm like, I can't tell the difference between these words. I get through the whole thing, and she doesn't give me an answer. I go to the graduation with everybody else and not knowing, not knowing. And then they hand you the diploma and then you get back to your seat and you peek and you open it up. And of course it's empty. Why do you realize this? Everybody's is empty because they give you the certificate later. Oh my God. Like, that must've oh been heartbreaking. God. <laughs> <laughs> it's not eighth grade. <laughs> Holding it together. <laughs> Shit. My parents are going to kill yeah. me. So then, you know, Figured that out, so went to high school. And then at that point, it's like, well, I'm going to do the least as possible to get through. Mm -hmm. Then there was this case of going through every drawing class, every art class, drafting class. And the last one was architectural drawing. And the instructor said, we want people to enter the AIA drawing competition. Mm. So, great. 
we go meet at the AI office. American Institute of Architects, for those of you who don't know. They give us this big program. They read the program, and you design the site, the architecture, and interior design. I look at this big program, and I go, oh, I have to read this? <laughs> so I struggle my way through that. And, but I said, well, why don't you just tell us what you want us to draw? I'm, you know, I'm good at drawing. It's like, no, no, read it. I go through the process. I design a site. I design a building. I design interiors. I do it on illustration board with ink. Pull my first all-nighter, and I'm thinking, this looks like it. In high school, your first all-nighter. First, first all-nighter. And I decide, I'm not going to turn this. This looks abysmal, you know. I'm scratching back, using whiteout to make it look nicer. And my dad goes, no, no, you have to turn it in. You don't quit. You turn it in. Let it Send it. Let it. If the chips fall where they fall. So I submit it, and a month goes by, and they come back, and like, oh, Vito, you won first prize. I'm like, how's that? Was that for Illinois? Um, it was Northern Illinois chapter of the AI. So it was a student competition. I wasn't going against professional architects. Oh, but don't be, don't belittle that. That's amazing. So <clears throat> we go to the big award ceremony, and I look at honorable mention, drawn by an angel, third prize, second prize, drawn by angels. I look at mine, the one I wasn't going to turn in because it was not a great drawing. And it's first prize, they're hanging up. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, what? Am I being punked here? You know, I was like, what? How? What's going on here? So these architects come up and they pat me on the back and they go, you know, congratulations for winning. And I'm like, I don't understand. These are drawn by angels. Mine looks like hell. And they go, yeah, it's, you know, it's, we've seen better drawings. I didn't, because I drew an illustration board, which is unforgiving. I didn't do it where I could erase and clean up. And they go, well, it wasn't a drawing competition. It was a design competition. And I didn't know that. So they go, I go, well, what was so good about the design? And they talked about the site design and the way you entered the site and how I had the pathway go where you would get a glimpse of the clubhouse that you were going to go, which is what the building was, and then you didn't see it, and then you got another glimpse of it again, and then you didn't see it, and then you arrived. And so you had this arrival sequence of experience. And they used technical terms to describe this that you learn in design school, which I had no idea what they were talking about. You found your happy place. And then when I went into the building, it's like you had the sequence of, you know, um, the space got smaller and tighter so that the next space felt bigger. And they go, well, that's compression and release. And I'm like, I, whatever. They go, well, yeah, you did it. And it's like, well, then the destination of this fireplace, well, you could see it through the portal of this wall, but you couldn't get to it. You had to go around it. You had to lose your sight of it and then come back to it. And they were talking about destination denied. And so they were using this vocabulary that put a theory behind what I was doing instinctually. And then that was the hook that got my passion. I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's something I'm actually good at. So I said, yeah. So, you know, with this scholarship money, it was a small scholarship, you can go on to study architecture. I'm like, great. And they go, well, how do you become an architect? So I'm thinking it's like a trade school. I'm like, oh, you go to university. I'm like, oh, that's never going to happen. <laughs> Because I always studied academically. And at that point, then, it was like, okay, paradigm shift. I have to redo everything. I had to go back and take the math courses that I avoided. I had to go take all these engineering and science classes that I avoided. And then I found out that I was actually good at them. Mm. And so when— so it was probably nonlinear. 
Yeah, I'm like when you got to you know visualizing three dimensional geometry, and they were trying to explain to class, oh, the intersections of two planes of the line, and everybody's like, we don't get it. I'm like, what do you not get? And I'm like, you have a if you have a yellow plane and you have a blue plane and they intersect, you get a green line. Can't you see that? I'm always amazed at like you found your you found your path, but it's always just heartbreaking to think of all of the kids out there that never could find their path and right they just struggled they're like ah i don't like this and i'm just gonna go do something else and uh it's just it's amazing and i think the more people that hear that that le learning differences are strengths in, yeah. in most every case that i've heard of it's um you just have to know how to find and tune into that frequency i like you've ever heard of the book know your strength so I love that because it talks about, you know, figuring out who you are and what your strengths are and leaning into your strengths. That doesn't mean abandoning your weaknesses as in, you know, I finally got the ability to read well, but I mean, not like you. I don't, I don't devour books. Books. <laughs> yeah. well, I books. Yeah. I don't do it for recreation. <laughs> yeah, but I have uh, trouble visualizing a 3D space. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, everyone's got their own strengths and weaknesses and i think we can all learn so much from that and i think it's also interesting that you know going back to the drafting table as a kid and creating all these things it's you've kind of come full circle and you're living in that almost childhood mindset right and that you know it's such a a cliche oh find what you're passionate about and do it but like you found it well you you're a parent. I'm a parent. You you see with your kids that they may have at some time in their life looked the same, but they're completely two different people. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's helping them find what their strengths are, what their passion are, is. And as you say, it's about doing hard things. Like you remember the first time you did something hard, like learning how to ride a bike, oh, yeah. which is involved crashing, right? That's an inevitable part of learning how to ride the bike. So one of my sons, I remember that when he wiped out and it hurt and he kicked the bike and he got frustrated and he said, you know, bikes aren't good for me. And I just remembered me going through that his age. And I said, I want you to remember this moment clearly. Because eventually when you're older, you're going to confront something in life that's going to seem impossible you can't get beyond. And I'm telling you, someday you're going to be a great on a bike. And you look back at this and go, wow, it wasn't that bad. So when you're an adult and you run into something really hard in life, you're going to go, I can't get through this. And you have to remember, you can get through it and you will get through it because you can do hard things. Yeah. I'm always like, I just read this book by David uh, Goggins, I think. Yes, the runner, the ex-Navy SEAL. Yeah. And it, the, thing, the big takeaway was when you really think you're at your limit, you're really probably 40% of the way there. Mm -hmm. And I've thought about that in a lot of different ways. It's really only been a month since I've read it, but you know, if I'm running or working out or whatever, doing something strenuous, working on something, and I'm like, I'm kind of burning out. I'm like, you know what? I'm feeling like I'm burning out right now or I'm tired or I don't want to go on. I'm only 40% of the way there. And it just helps. I'm not saying I ever get to 100. I'm not running ultra marathons, but I think we can apply that to everything that we do. So recently I've, I just had my 13th anniversary with Hilton. Mm -hmm. 
which is the same day as my wedding anniversary. And my wife and I went to high school together. Um, so I remember you and I met about 12 years ago. And at the time, we started talking about taking up martial arts at a later age. Yeah. And so you went to path of jiu-jitsu. I did, and I started doing it, but then the pandemic made me not want to do it anymore mm -hmm. because sweat would drip into my eyes. Uh -huh. Well, also breathing that close to other yeah. people during the pandemic. But that was something that you and I pursued later in life, too, a yeah. new challenge. Totally. And I, one of the things I really liked about that, too, is I remember going to one of my classes. I brought my kids. Um, it was, like, down in some basement in the Flatiron. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm— going up against these guys who were older, younger, smaller, and they just destroyed me of course. in front of my kids. Yeah. And it was also, but I wasn't embarrassed. I was like, that is really awesome to get knocked down like that in front of you, my you kids. You learn by being humbled. Yeah. And it's, and about, it's about the thinking. thinking. It's, and, it's, it's, yeah. and I think they also appreciate it too. I mean, I think it's like we all think our parents are these amazing people, but we also just see that they're normal everyday people mm -hmm. we're not we're not something special although kids i am special i i know all <laughs> and you always need to listen to me because i know what i'm talking about <laughs> so to try new things to get knocked down to know that you always have more in the tank to have found the place where you excel and that you're passionate about like Taking all of that in in your life experience to where you are now, what's the what's your favorite thing about what you do now at Hilton? You know what what's interesting is shifting gears from working for an architecture into a design firm, designing with a client for the end user. Um, you're you're doing the design, and when you shifted to Hilton, uh, we're global design services at Hilton. We are setting the direction for each of the brands so that you you have the freedom of flexibility for the owners and their consultants that they hire to design something that they are passionate about, but make sure that they land in the zone of what's on brand versus us specifically doing the brand. So not only are we exploring the future and what's possible and what's right for the brand, we have to think in terms of what's the legacy of properties that are already out there that can't evolve as quickly. And then on individual specific projects, then we provide guidance, review, and approval of design for each of the brands. And so when you're able to look at a design that somebody's working on and, and sort of guide them along. So you always want to start out with, so why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you designing what it is? Well, the first answer you usually get is it's the property improvement plan, the acronym PIP. PIP yeah. yeah. And they're like, well, we have to do this. And it's like, okay, yeah. Um, but, you know, it's like washing part of your face. It doesn't make sense. It's like, what, what all should you be doing with the limited budget and time that you have to do this? And then you have to think in terms of why are we doing this? It's, well, it's for the guest, the user. The guest could be somebody who walks in and visits and uses it. It could be somebody who's not even going to stay in the hotel. They're going to stop by there for a drink and meet somebody or they, they, they have an overnight in the hotel. But then you have the users of the operator. So you're thinking about 
the users. You're thinking about the, the business success of it. You're thinking working within the constraints that you have. And, you know, you're in the business of design. It has to be a success for the hotel operator. So with all these things going on, we're trying to make it a win-win-win or everybody's happy. So how do you make this a great design? So when we bring in a designer and you have world-class designers and you have people who they've never designed anything before, but the owner believed in them. And you're trying to help them get to a better solution at the end. And for all the stakeholders. For all the stakeholders. And we see so many hotels. And our brains are going so quickly that when they start to go down a path, you're like, no, 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 no. Uh, let's get you on the right path. And it's not the right path as in this is the way it's done, therefore do it that way. It's that there's a reason things are done this way. Now, we don't have to be constrained by that. We can do it many other ways. So when somebody says, oh, I've got a new idea, let's go do it this way. It's like, well, there's a reason we haven't done it that way before. And then don't just give up. Like, let's explore it together. Like, maybe we can crack this nut. It's like, maybe there is a way of doing it in this other way that was never done before and to solve it. So you're trying to solve functional issues. You're trying to keep in mind housekeeping, how they have to do it. There's a lot of variables at the same time. And we are in a very quick motion working with them collaboratively, getting consensus and getting in the right direction. That success is fun. Mm. And it's, Again, going back to your childhood, it's building that better mousetrap, right? Mm-hmm. Or rabbit trap. Um, it's it's finding it's it's also again back into that idea of okay, there's we know what works, but there's really no strict game plan, right? It's problem solving, it and finding alignment between all the stakeholders, right. which is oftentimes nonlinear as well. Right. And the other thing is, instead of starting the design of, oh, I've got to check these boxes and get the PIP done, we start with going, what's the story behind the design? So when you are, like, we, we have what we call hard brands and soft brands, collection brands. So like a curio and a tapestry is a collection brand where they're in slightly different categories, but we'll use curio, for example. It's, we use the catchphrase, it's your brand, it's our engine. So come into the fold, what's your hotel story about? It's easy when they come in with a hotel that is, you know, been there for a while, it already has a name, and they've been independent and they're just coming into the system. It's something else if you're going to take a bank building and convert it to a hotel or, in some case, building a brand-new hotel. There's no history there. So you start by creating a brand story behind it, and that story and vision is the guide to what you're going to do design-wise. And yeah, you got to make sure it functions, it works well, and meets the uh, the basic programmatic requirements. But the main thing is, what is that vision and story behind it? Similarly, with a hard brand, Hilton Hotels and Resorts has been around over 100 years. Every property is truly unique from the next, just like your kids. Each one is truly unique, but you can tell. Of course. And you, and people from the outside go, well, they're clearly in there in the family. Yeah. So, you know, you want to be able to look at a Hilton and go, oh, I could tell the Hilton Hotel Resort is in the family, but it's not the hotel of 100 years ago. It's going to be a hotel now that Hilton's going to be more playful. It's going to be more energetic. It's going to be younger. It's going to have more color to it. It's going to, it could spin more lifestyle in one location. It could be more 
traditional another location. It's uh, there's so many different unique directions it can go, and that's one thing that's great about the new head of our full service brands, Gary Stefan, has said, you know, there's, you know, it's a new sky, it's a new direction we're going to go. There's new optimism and opportunity here. We can't neglect the ones that can't change as quickly, but we need to let everybody know that we can really stretch the envelope of where we can go design-wise, but at the same time, you have to have an ethos that says, if you do this, you're sort of in the target zone, and if you do this, then you're you're not this brand, you're another brand. And you know it when you feel it. Right. Oh. I'm still shocked. You just said it a couple seconds ago, or a, minute, a couple minutes ago. You've been there for 13 years. Yeah. I cannot. How did the hell did that happen? That's, well, that. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like I just met you. I can't believe it's 12 years. It's like a whole full turn of the Zodiac plus a year. Like, how did you find your way to Hilton? Um, well, um, there were, I was with Getty's group for a while in Chicago doing hospitality. That's where I got my, went from healthcare into hospitality. And so I started losing, learning the, you know, the, the foundation of hospitality there. And, uh, Interesting things that stood out in my mind were them saying, you know, it's it's guest perception, guest experience. But then at the same time, they, they flipped their hat and they was think like a hotel owner. And after a time with them, I went to work for Gensler and I did a, almost 10 years with Gensler. And um, things were going fantastic there. I was leading a team. I was bringing work in the door and things were going great. And then we skidded into the uh, 2008 economic crash and uh at that time it was like okay everything in hospitality were skids off breaks nothing's going on and um uh one of our mutual friends um said give me your cv i think i know somebody you might be hiring and so i said no no just tell me who to send it to i i'm an adult i'll send the cv there i don't need to give it to you to hand to them and he's like okay fine and then, you know, kind of struggling to find opportunities during that time, I gave um, him a call and uh, there's no answer. And so I was like, oh, my gosh, what what's going on here? And somebody says, oh, um, I said, why, why is Larry Traxler not answering the phone at Hyatt? And they go, oh, didn't you hear what happened? I go, no, what happened? I go, oh, he, he's now the head of design at Hilton. I go, oh. So I speed dial him on the cell phone. And he answers his phone and he says, uh, yeah, you want to send me that CV now? And I go, yes, Larry. <laughs> ah, okay. I didn't know that. So I'm like, okay, this is fantastic. He goes, no, okay, the job's not guaranteed. You got to got an interview for it. Right. I go, okay, you want my portfolio? He goes, you've been showing me my portfolio, your portfolio for years because I would come in with Gunsler's portfolio and I'd sift through this thing and i go, I don't know anything about that project. Well, here's the project I worked on and we did this. Our scope was this. Because sometimes the scope would be minor or major and, you know, so I would be very transparent, as you know I am. What we did as Gensler and what other firms did, what my team did or what I specifically worked on. So he already knew my portfolio. Um, so we went and interviewed at a Starbucks near Wrigley Field because that's he lived in the Wrigleyville area. And he's like, okay, here's here's the job position for you. It's a senior director of Doubletree. And, um, you know, this is what the role's about. 
and this is what it's like to work on the corporate side. And I'm like, oh, I had no idea what it was like to be on that side of the table. They flew me out to Beverly Hills, did the interview there with uh, Matt oh, Richardson. Oh, that's when they were there. Yeah, I forgot and about that. And then they're like, you got the job. Yeah. That was 13 years ago. Wow. Wow. It's so crazy. 13 years has gone by so fast. I know we spent so much time speaking about the past and your origin and kind of how you came to be where you are at Hilton. Um, as we kind of shift gears and look to the future, what's exciting you most about the future? Um, well, I'm still passionate about innovation. Okay. Um, that came up a lot in our conversation. And From dad to you. Yeah. To drafting tables. And the the part about innovation these days is there's the you know the the technical, the digital, mm-hmm. you know the physical, and uh, so the 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 key word there is the fidgetal. It's kind of in between the two, the interface between the two. And uh, so it's always great to see new innovations come up and sort of fan the flames of creativity of other inventors and seeing how. How, when you see where they're going, how they can make it better. Um, but one of the things I find frustrating is when the answer to most innovations is, oh, we can do an app for that. Right. And I'm saying, well, you know, we still live in an analog world, right? You still have physical bodies, and how, do you, how are you comfortable, right? So even like the matter of sleeping, you can't sleep in any other way. Like, if, you know... 50, 100 years from now, as long as we have gravitational pull, I think we're probably going to be sleeping horizontally. You know, we're not going to be just adrift if, if we're weightless, right? But there's ways of exploring things of how you can sleep differently by using, like, nomadic air pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, like, there is this, this theory of providing comfort, like, through body compression. Uh, they found this with autistic children. Uh, they found it, like... With, with cows, you can kind of compress and hold a cow to comfort it so you can, the veterinarian can take care of it. Uh, and it's not just squeezing it like don't move. It comforts it. It soothes it. And it's so, also like those gravity blankets are freaking amazing. So there's these pneumatic boots with air pressure that, you know, are have, it helps with the healing process. Well, the idea of like using it around your body to wrap it and snuggle you and comfort you and help you sleep and have it read your your body's... Um, you know, the blood pressure, the the rhythm of your brain and what level of sleep you're in, uh, the temperature you have, and to augment to this to make it prescribed for you. That's an exciting trend of the future. And I know we also share being on the advisory board of Hotel of Tomorrow, which is always, what I love about it is it's just creating this open source kind of boundary pushing where where's this all going right um and i know like speaking to ron swidler on this and just all the work that they've done has been amazing but what are some other initiatives that you're you're seeing or a part of it that are exciting well, one you? thing i'd like to see more motion on is and i mentioned this a year ago at the lodging conference when ron kindly had me on his panel to speak about the hotel tomorrow is that um we were leading up to, oh, we're going to have the hotel tomorrow with the Oculus glasses. So we were all in this virtual reality space. So we were able to meet with each other and our avatars in a, in a built environment. And that's, that's great. But it's 100% digital. Right. And what I see the future of is making it a hybrid. 
so it's more virtual virtual reality, um, augmented reality instead of virtual reality. So if these glasses that we're both wearing were actual digital glasses and there was four people in the room, maybe three of us or two of us are actually in the same room and the others are in different locations. So I see you and can touch you, but if I reach over to touch the next person, it's a ghost. It's a ghost. And it, I can only see it in my glasses, but they're sitting on the sofa with me. And when you see us, you see us sitting together. And so getting that sense of making the physical reality more part of that experience. So you can be with your grandmother who you more often in person. Well, I tell you, and I think what I loved about Hotel of Tomorrow as well is donning those oculuses or oculi, if that's the plural of it, um, and being on the airship and talking to people and seeing a presentation and audio, the audio being louder when I'm close to you or I could hear people kind of off chattering. Um, the technology, it, it still seemed a bit rough mm -hmm. because like, I don't know how much bandwidth it would take to make it all rendered perfectly like mm -hmm. you're in a movie screen, but to just glimpse that 3D virtual space it was just like the first step into kind of, it helped me really get my head around envisioning what that future could be. And that from whether it's augmented, virtual, in-person, all of the above, I think that there's still so much more room to grow. I don't, and I don't even know where the hell. Well, the way my about. mind works is I keep flipping back and forth from the extreme ends of the scale. So one extreme end is anything's possible. We're going to figure it out. We're going to make it happen. So there's no wrong answers. There's no bad ideas, right? So you just go, 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 just with, with no filter. And then I flip to the other extreme end. And this goes back from my childhood of, okay, you could design it, but you had to build it. It's got to actually work reliably and repeatedly. And so the thing is, well, how do you really make it happen? <clears throat> so I'm, when I'm always at the trade shows and I go to somebody's booth and they go, well, this is what we got now and this is what we're going to do in the future. I'm like, yeah, right. Okay. Then I start challenging it. So right away I challenge this like, well, if we're going to be sitting here and I see you and you're physically here and I see the person who's not quite here, we have to have around us like many photogrammetry, real time scanning of us so that like the photo, so photogrammetry is creating that digital model in real time and generating it in such a way you see in your glasses. Not a problem. It's just a matter of processing speed and storage capacity, which in the future gets better and better and better. Yeah. But, you know, you have to stop and go, yeah, but what does it really take to do that, you know? And then the other thing that's concerning about all this innovation is how do you do it while protecting privacy? So, for example, the team, and of course, no one person designs anything, right? The team I was on for Hotel Tomorrow, we had, as a group of four, an idea. And it turned out, Three other teams were along the same direction with this idea. So we coalesced our ideas together. Actually, Ron was great at having his team listen to all our ideas and help, you know, compress them together as one idea. But one of the things that we talked about is <clears throat> the idea of this journey stone. If you walk into a property and you were going to want to have great service, how can the people there, when you walk in, immediately know, oh, Dan's here? And I, these are Dan's preferences. How do we welcome and greet Dan exactly the way Dan wants to be greeted and give him the drink he wants and the food and just 
his personal nuances of, of how you dance around him to make him graceful and elegant. Nice. How do you make that just what Dan wants versus what, you know, Jane wants? Well, then the thought is, let's take that to the next level. What if Dan wants to be treated differently on different occasions? So if Dan's traveling on business with a group or business on his own, or family with just his wife or family with his kids. It's like, how, what level do you want to be treated differently? And maybe in some cases, anonymity. Mm-hmm. In our case, anonymity is when we're checking out the competition. Right. But if you want to walk up and say, okay, I'm on a business trip by my own, myself. I'm going to walk in. Do I want to sit at the bar or the communal table? What feels socially more comfortable and safe for me? And when I sit at, the, at one of them, do I want the server to come over and say, you know, hey, Norm, or hey, you know, Sally, whatever the name is, which is your alias. So it's almost like having a, a dial for pri- for privacy or anonymity to, or right. to not. That- still get the your reward points. Still give usable data that has business quality to the restaurant, the hotels, and its clock cross-platform. But without getting spammed. But, with, but without giving up your privacy of you ate at this time and you can serve this many calories and you had this much fat, protein, and carbs. You know, it's like, it's none of your business what I ate. <laughs> but all that information lives somewhere. Right. I mean, because I'm not the type of person, you've seen my Instagram, I've posted zero. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I think people have different levels of privacy that they want. And so that can be integrated. Oh, I like that. Um, I want to go back to when you're at your drafting table as a kid, but before you won the AIA award. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're there, you're at the table, you're working, you're designing your whatever trap or contraption. Let's surprise just say a contraption, your surprise gift. Um, and then you, the veto that I'm speaking to, sitting to you right here, right now, you magically appear in front of your younger self. What advice do you have for yourself? It's the same advice I try and give to my kids, and is that you have you have more capability than you're aware of. Which kind of that's amazing because that also ties into when you think you're you've hit your limit, you're probably only forty percent of the way there. Yes, that's part of it, but it but it's also you know when when somebody tells a child you know you can do anything you want if you want to, it's like well. I was never going to be a basketball player or a ballerina. You know, swing dancing is probably as close as I get to that. Or maybe a literary major either. Yeah, no way. So there's there's like, you have your own unique strengths, but where you can go with it is far beyond what you're imagining. And the other thing that I would tell then, which I also tell my kids is, what you can do in the future, um, and you be, might be great at, that technology doesn't even exist yet. So when we were kids, there was no internet. Mm-hmm. So how would you imagine doing some of the things you could do today? Because it, it just it wasn't on the board. So, so the emphasis is just, you know, follow your love, your dreams, play into your strengths, know that you have more capability than you would imagine you have. And opportunities are going to come in the future both from discoveries of ways to integrate two things of 
capabilities and talents that you didn't know you have or didn't know would mix together, as well as the fact that no one person does anything. You Nobody gets anywhere as a soloist. It's, you know, you get to where you are in the future because people invest in you and you need to invest in others. So there's this combination of the, the two of those working together. How can you help other people? And as a, way, as a result of that, everybody helps each other. I love it. And... And I think, and I think, for most of the people that I'm speaking to here, and that I interact with, or that I'm drawn to, it really comes down to there's this theme of we all stand on the shoulders of those before us, right? Right. We're all a part of a team that's trying to get something done. We're not a party of one. Right. Um, all right. I, I love. I love that. I cannot wait to listen to this and share this with everyone. Um, how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more? Uh, you know, LinkedIn is the easiest. Okay, yeah. And, um, they connect with me. Um, you can send a message in LinkedIn and if, if there seems to be the right rapport, then the next step is here's my Hilton email address. <laughs> Great. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. And, uh, of course we'll put the, all the Hilton information up there as well. Um, I want to say thank you for helping me get uncomfortable. And I, I feel like also you being from Illinois, in a weird way, I feel like we're in Wayne and Garth's basement right now from Wayne's World <laughs> recording this. But I feel like I've learned so much about doing this, my first one in person. And um, thanks for helping me get uncomfortable, but also be comfortable with this format because I think that this is going to help all these conversations that I'm having with you and others evolve. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. So I would, you know, you're, you're a good friend. Um, and I trust you. Uh, you've done such amazing podcasts that, uh, you made it comfortable for me to do it. Wow. See, we're both helping each other now. Um, and also, you know, looking straight at the camera right now, thank you to the guests. We keep growing every single week. It is so humbling. Um, and the feedback is amazing. So if this has changed your idea on how to grow, how to get uncomfortable, how to be the best that you can, uh, how to make others comfortable, please pass it along. It's all word of mouth. And um, thank you. We'll look forward to the next one. <laughs>